I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Brianna Elizabeth Henry. Rihanna, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a mineralogist, right? Yes. What is that? Uh, I study minerals professionally. Uh, specifically, I guess, I don't know, you could say gemstone geologist or gemstone mineralogist because I think I've been working primarily with uh, gem minerals. Uh, and I'm looking at mineral chemistry and properties and how it relates to geology. Uh, some mineralogists end up focusing a little more on more atomic scale things, and I do to an extent, um, but some are extremely hard focused on all of those details, and some are more geology focused. Excellent. It's a wide range. Uh, do you have a favorite mineral? <laughs> that one is a funny question because there's too many I like, so I've separated my favorites into favorite by crystal system. So my favorite isometric mineral would be garnet. Uh, my favorite uh, trigonal would be a tourmaline, but favorite hexagonal, I'm obligated to say barrel. Um, let's see. Yeah, those are those are most of the ones. Maybe the favorite orthorhombic is a topaz. It's funny, I thought you'd immediately see, say barrel or emerald. I did, but that's uh, the fav- barrel is the favorite hexagonal mineral. But there's so many other minerals that I can't have just one. True. So I had to classify them. I usually use the excuse that it changes day by day and that gets me out of answering that question. At what uh, stage in your career are you at? Are you a student, a prof? I'm a graduate student uh, and right now I am in the fourth year in the last stages um, waiting for feedback on my thesis from my committee members hoping to defend in September. And are you aiming for a master's or a PhD? A PhD. Excellent. Excellent. What did you do for your undergrad degrees Uh, and your master's? I went to University of Colorado at Boulder for both undergrad and master's. Um, I actually started in physics and I picked physics because I liked math, Uh, but I'd always liked gems and minerals. So I was dabbling in geology. And then my senior year came around and I declared double major with geology. So it took me a while to finish a double major, but ended up with a Bachelor of Oddly Arts in both physics and geology. And then masters, I was doing a crystal chemistry of the rare earth beryllium iron mineral, uh, also in Colorado. And it was masters finished 2018. Is beryllium a gem? Uh, beryllium's an element. It's one of the really light ones and occurs in rather chemically fractionated environments. I have no science background, so um, right. <laughs> I'm just good at faking it. Well, it will help you remember beryl, the one that I'm working on now, because beryl came first. It's a beryllium mineral. It's the one that element is named for. Uh, do you find that your physics background is uh, useful? Uh, 
yeah, usable in your day-to-day work? Uh, conceptually, yes. Uh, I don't end up using all of the really hard physics classes and all of the intense math, but having gone through the learning process, it was really nice, especially when learning how instrumentation works and some of how my measurements and data are collected. It gives me a more intuitive feel of what's going on and what to expect. Um, if there are errors, I have a better idea of what can happen. Um, but specifically, I'd say optics has been really useful because that's that's the premise of a lot of mineral identification. Uh, I know better how even the petrographic microscope works and more comfortable with the diffractometers and all of the spectroscopes. I have a general foundation in what's going on and more capable of reading the manuals, I'd say. Excellent. It's always good when you can recycle some of that knowledge from a previous life um, and not have to start from scratch. When Yeah, uh, if I was going into the hard math again, I'd have to start over a bit just from lack of use, but the general premises is so nice. And it's um, funny what you mentioned about using your intuition. We always think of science as being... Um, you know, very straight cut and um, and uh, oh, unbiased. Uh, but there is a degree of intuition and hunch following. Yes, but there's also, you have to develop that. It doesn't come oh, on its own. So it, it's also a trained skill. Drew you into um, mineralogy? Uh, I got taken to a lot of gem and mineral shows as a kid. Uh, was going to the Hayward show uh, in Northern California with my dad, and then we'd go to just do general rock hounding, brooch trips, picking up basic little rocks and stuff. But I can be easily entertained by just basic points of course. So that was always fun. And then uh, jewelry work. Uh, I really liked arts and crafts and the fine detail. So don't have a need to like wear all of the jewelry, but I really love everything that goes into it. So I wanted to know more about all of the materials and things like that. Uh, ended up doing an entire semester of silver, intense silversmithing for undergrad even. And then doing that reminded me that I really missed math and science. So uh, then it was just kind of back and forth between do I want to be doing hard science or art-ish stuff? Settled on Gemstone geology. I felt kind of ridiculous asking the question because, of course, why wouldn't you be into it? You get to look at some of the most beautiful stones and learn about them. And yeah. You don't have to pay for them. And yeah, that's kind of the best with. thing is like, I don't necessarily need my home, and they're expensive if I want them at home, but I get to work with them yeah. professionally, which is outstanding. Uh, just to neener neener at the Diamonds Lab here, I think I probably have the prettiest sample set in the department. (laughs) (laughs) A bit of cross uh, gemology rivalry going on. Maybe. (laughs) Now, in your studies, have you ever made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Uh, Some soft ones. Um, And so I've been working with uh, Beryl. That's the current specialty. And uh, I've been formalizing how much molecular water goes into that mineral, which is nice. But then I was... What is molecular water? Uh, 
So instead of having water behave as a fluid, uh, you can have like single molecules that can be trapped in an atomic structure. And beryl is one of those. Uh, it tends to happen when you have sodium in there and the sodium is there because of other chemical switch-ups. Uh, but the water goes with the sodium and that's sort of been known for a while, but I've been formalizing relations on that so that it can be easily calculated. Um, and then there's one that's weird. Uh, it's red barrel from Utah. Uh, so barrel includes emerald and aquamarine, but the red one is super rare and only from Utah and it comes from a volcanic source, which is super weird. And the weird part is it doesn't have water. And I think I can prove that it's it's not just different by color. Uh, I think it's its own subset. Like it doesn't have water. It's in a different locality than any other, but also it's structurally different. So it just follows a different trend than others. Um, it took a set of dozens of graphs to show that, but yeah, the, it's just slightly deviated from the trends of other barrel. So it, it goes together to be really neat, and it's neat to really prove that, especially because other people have suspected it's different, but they went, but we can't show it because it's too subtle. And I teased that out, so that's cool. And uh, in the process of doing that, a uh, different sample, a huge sample set, uh, came up as a weird one that I'm going to be investigating further. I have a weird aquamarine that has lots of iron and cesium which is just a strange combination. So if I can do a little more work on that, I think I might have a case for another weird barrel. Excellent. Congratulations. That sounds like it'd be gorgeous. Um, they're fun and a geologist will say they're gorgeous. A gemologist would say it's just a little blue column, <laughs> but I like both. So that's good. Now that's what you've been working on in the past. Uh, what's your current research on? Those were my current ones. Oh, yeah. sorry, of course they are. Uh, past one uh, was good dolomite for my master's. Um, that one is the rare earth beryllium iron uh, silicate. And that one, uh, my master's was um, proving that in that mineral, beryllium and silicons can substitute for each other. Um, which in one mineral is not necessarily the coolest thing, but when you go, oh, if it happens in one, it can happen in another. Um, beryllium's pretty rare, and knowing that it can hide where there's silicon is pretty important. So if anyone wants to look for beryllium, they should be looking in other silicates because it's going to be just as trace amounts in the silicon site. And is beryllium commercially useful or industrial? Uh, I believe it is um, in some quantities, but honestly, I don't have it off the top of my head what the application is. Besides, who would want to destroy a beautiful emerald just for a bit of even the most valuable rare earth? You wouldn't need to be destroying something that's pretty necessarily. There's all sorts of beryllium-bearing minerals that are lumps. Honestly, some of the ones I used in my pretty sample set, they're not all pretty. Some of them are pretty lumpy. And you've actually used the PME's uh, collection. Yes, um, the museum was one of the first groups that uh, let me use samples, uh, ranging from just basic little uh, hexagonal columns to some truly gorgeous ones. Uh, I think my 
favorite is that uh, kind of yellowish green Heliodor from, I believe it's Brazil. That thing is absolutely gorgeous. Ukraine. That one? No, that one wasn't. But I, I've i been reading about the Ukrainian Heliodors and I want one. <laughs> they have emeralds out there too. Uh, and I've always appreciated that when you're going through the collection, um, I mean, you know more about these specimens than I do, and you'll say, oh no, that one's way too pretty for uh, yeah. for research or for yeah, this I'm, experiment. If I'm taking some pieces, all I need is, like, depending on what I'm doing, um, some of them I only need like a millimeter of a sample, so if I can pry just a tiny chip off the end, then the value is preserved. But if it's a really gorgeous one, then there might not be a way for me to do that without further destruction, then you just you have to put it away. You're not going to damage something like that. And I totally appreciate that you're the one who says sometimes, no, this one's not too nice. Because um, again, you know better than I do. <laughs> one of my favorite parts of these uh, interviews has been hearing about people's field stories. Um, do you do much field work or have you ever? Um, I've done some. Uh, compared to a lot of geologists, I don't do that much. And unfortunately, my main project actually changed um, away from it. But I've done a little bit, um, let's see, during the masters, uh, was helping out on a project up in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, this is a Rihanna likes rocks too much and it was kind of stupid story where I loaded a, my 30 liter backpack completely full of rocks and then I had an armload of rocks and hiked back and to the car it was a mile or two. It's not that bad, but it's up and down hills and whatnot. And maybe a hundred meters from the car, I fell. Um, fortunately, not where I was picking up the rocks because that was a jagged, nasty area. But I landed in pine needles. Uh, it was almost an ankle twist, but I just I fell before I even put weight on it. So my knees were completely bruised up. My elbows, my wrists were mangled. And one of the rocks that was in my backpack fell forward and clumped the back of my neck. Oh. Um, no permanent damage, but definitely had to spend some extra money for massages and uh, chiropractors to just put me back into place. Uh, so that was just being done with too many rocks. I, um, might, I might do it again, just secure that back rock better in the future because I really like carrying rocks. <laughs> um, but in 2018, right before coming out here, um, we were out collecting red barrel in deserts of Utah, and it was July uh, Celsius, so 40 degrees-ish Celsius. It was baking and bone dry out there. Um, and we're on white rhyolites, so it's at least reflective and the rocks themselves are not scorching you. Uh, we were there with one of the miners who picked things up, who also coincidentally ran an organic farm. And I had coincidentally won a beer naming contest. So I had cases of beer out there. So we feasted just like kings in the middle of the desert. It was fantastic. Um, and spent middle of the day taking a nap under a tarp. So work was morning and evening. Uh, digging in the tailings was interesting because that rock is, hey, go, it's rhyolite. It's not that special, except it's extremely rich in fluorine. Um, which can etch things and tarnish things. I wear a sterling silver ring. It's usually nice and silvery. 20 minutes of digging around in the tailings looking for a red barrel had turned my ring completely black. 
Yeah, I uh, didn't notice any issues on my skin, but maybe in the future I'd wear gloves. Right. Um, and also out there, um, there are snakes. Fortunately, they were polite. We pulled up the truck. We got out. We were talking about 20, 30 minutes later. We looked down and about arm's length away from uh, one of the other guys was a rattlesnake. It totally could have bitten him, but it was just watching us. And as soon as we saw it, then the snake was like, oh, hey, you're not going to eat me. Bye. And just curled up. So a uh, little bit nerve wracking to go, oh, we were that close, but I'll work out. What did you name the beer? Uh, that one was for Denver Comic-Con 2017, and the name was I Am Groot. Because oh. uh, Groot in Guardians of the Galaxy is a good character. <laughs> I Am Groot. That's clever. Yeah. And I've totally made the mistake of taking too, much, too many rocks. Um, and I always say never again until the next time I have to go out with rocks. Uh, I remember taking a, a display to the, um, an educational display to the New West Farmer's Market, and I took it on transit, because um, I don't drive, and it was August, and it was all uphill, and I remember every block I had to stop because there was sweat running into my eyes. Um, I had a suitcase full of rocks, a tote bag full of rocks, I had banners galore, and again, I said never again, and then sure enough, after okay. the pandemic, oh, I've been... Yeah. Uh, but have you had to pick up a bag and put it in the overhead compartment? No. Yeah, uh, after a workshop in Maine, I filled my suitcase. I got all my clothes somehow into the backpack instead and had my rolly bag completely and utterly full of rocks. Um, and I was just going to roll that in. It's one that I can bring uh, as a carry-on, but there's a limit um, of... 50 pounds and they weighed it. Yeah, I'm surprised and, you got through with that. Uh, so the person who weighed it was like, it's like 53, can you shift things around? So I just took one item out and put it in the backpack and then it fit, but I still had to get 50 pounds of rocks into the overhead. So if anyone ever asks, what are you carrying? Are you carrying rocks? The answer is probably yes. <laughs> Your research sounds uh, fascinating and gorgeous. Uh, but what are the real-world applications of what you do? So with uh, the gemstone geology that I'm doing on Beryl, some of this is for better characterizing deposits um, and figuring out the more accurate measurements of what's in them. Um, you can't measure water very easily by most means, so having a way of calculating it is really useful. And by investigating the chemistry of all Beryl, I can determine certain trends regarding all of the different features. Uh, there's multiple different colors, so seeing how those separate is nice. And if there are differences that are separated coincidentally on color, but aren't necessarily by the things that cause the color. So like I'm finding emeralds, you go, oh, well, they're green. And it's pretty well known that's chromium and vanadium that cause them to be green, but they're also much more magnesium rich than most other barrel. And so that to me is in part a trait of emeralds that can then be used for classification is if you're going to create a classification trend, 
do something in regards to magnesium. Um, and red barrel are weird in that they don't have sodium, but they do have potassium, another one of those oddities. Um, so mostly what I'm doing is helping classify those, and then that can go back to one looking at geologic environments and helping figure out why they are where they are. But for people in jewelry business and uh, mineral sales, uh, it helps on provenance studies. So certain localities have certain characteristics and those go back to chemistry. So anything you can do to provide effectively a signature of a sample is really nice for them. And I can help provide guidance on where to look for good signatures. So you could theoretically uh, weed out conflict stones? Um, possibly, yeah. Um, or at least say this isn't a conflict stone, it's clearly from uh, North America. Not directly with my research, but the types of information that you'd... It's, it's in that training intuition thing of, you go, oh, well, this is the type of chemistry you need to develop, uh, that sort of thing. Um, the, then that's on the chemistry side, but my more recent paper that I just submitted is more on the crystal structure. And that's on if you can predict the structure. And structure largely doesn't change, but it does a little in order to accommodate different chemistry. And so that's been a little bit of a unicorn is predicting. Uh, if you can just take uh, all of the chemistry and figure out a structure, and at least for barrel, I can, including in different subsets which is really neat, and structure then goes into potentially physical properties, which is useful for other types of geology, like uh, elasticity, um, seismic features. A lot of those go back towards your crystal structures. Uh, that's not necessarily something you're gonna do with barrel specifically because at most it's an accessory phase. But if I can prove that you can do it with barrel, then you can do it with other minerals, which is really cool. So that's kind of one of those I wanna do it in the future is kind of repeat my process on a major rock forming mineral to do a full structure prediction of, if you change chemistry just a little bit, what's gonna happen? Um, other things uh, can help guide exploration for what is possible in a mineral. So with my structure prediction stuff, I can go, well, what's the limit on how much can I change what's in here? And go, well, it turns out that I'm confident you could actually have a chromium dominant barrel group mineral. So maybe we should start thinking, hmm, where could we find such a mineral? Uh, so that's pretty exciting. Or maybe you could synthesize it instead. But, yeah. It sounds like you're writing the, uh, the high-level scientific Wikipedia page on barrel and um, <laughs> uh, why it is, why various types act the way they do. Uh, I could probably contribute to that. Uh, only a little bit on the history side. But on the science side, yeah, start working on that. Speaking of which, how big is the global barrel market? Uh, well, Roughly. <laughs> Emerald is one of 
the most major sought out gemstones. Um, aside from diamond, three major colored stones would be ruby, sapphire, and emerald. Ruby and sapphire both being corundum, emerald being the most expensive barrel. Uh, so it's going to ebb and flow with economy, but emerald has been loved throughout history uh, and probably always will be. It is. The nice ones are absolutely gorgeous, green, amazing pieces, um, tragically expensive, <laughs> uh, and really, really fun under a microscope. So I kind of like the ones that are less good because they are just a world of their own. Um, otherwise, like aquamarine, again, is well-loved for ages. Um, so general need for barrel? Yeah, uh, I think that there's always going to be people that want it. Uh, and knowing where it's from is good. Knowing if we can mine it safely would be nice. Uh, that's not necessarily something I can do, but I can encourage people to not destroy everything when you go for your gems, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or at least put things back a little bit when you're done. Yeah. And one of the things that shocked me working here is that Canada produces uh, barrels, right? Uh, yeah, there are some barrel deposits in Canada. And let's see, there's emeralds up in Yukon and maybe Northwest Territories, and I think Nunavut. Um, from what I know, from what my advisor has done on those, is that Potentially pretty, maybe there's more, but it would be very difficult to get to for more extraction. Um, there's a major lithium cesium mine in Manitoba where barrel is an accessory mineral there, but it's kind of big, ugly white masses. Um, and then, yeah, just up in Revelstoke is where I have a little bit uh, of samples from. So I think there's a few areas that. Canada has barrel. Uh, they currently are not the major gem areas, but uh, maybe more research will prove that rubble stuff is good for it because that would be fun. Yeah, it's all fun. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they're gorgeous. You're clearly very passionate about your work and your research, and I think I know the answer to this, but what's the best part of your research? Yeah, the best part can kind of just be rummaging through my samples going, yeah, I have new things to play with. This is great. Um, and then also if I get a chance to go outside uh, for my yearly excursion, then going and finding them is spectacular. Um, and I really like once you have your first bit of data and you put something together and go, we're just going, hey, I found something. This is useful. The aha moment is really good. Um, followed by the, oh no, now I have to do the less fun parts. But yeah, uh, just working with samples is great. Uh, last week, are you allowed to tell me about the uh, the release, the special sample that you you had? Oh, um, the one from the locality, which you were yeah. not expecting? Yeah, I can talk about that one. So I have a pretty little aquamarine in my data set, and it is from Kangwon, North Korea. Uh, the sample is maybe less than the size of my first pinky joint on my finger, and pretty sky blue uh, in a rock matrix. And 
I suspect that the way it got to me was that it was hiding in a museum for many years since before the Korean War. So sometimes the museums hold all sorts of precious stuff that then end up being passed to researchers like me. If people knew how most museums are um, not as organized as people think, uh, they'd be shocked. Uh, I actually made a little bit of a discovery on that front. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some samples that were given to me as, look, there's barrel, go ahead and use them. And then I took a tiny, tiny chip off a little pink one, and they're gorgeous little pink chips. Um, was thinking they'd be morganite, the pink barrel. Well, they go through the x-ray diffractometer, and you get a general idea of what it's going to be after 15 minutes, and then you get the in-depth data after an hour or two. And with those 15 minutes, you go, that's not a barrel. That's a tourmaline. <laughs> yeah, so it had been sitting in a collection, uh, just waiting and being labeled as barrel for who knows how long until I zap it with an x-ray and go, nope. That makes me feel better. I've definitely, um, on a first visual scan, confused barrels and tourmalines myself. Yeah, and uh, that's really not a shame, especially if they're broken. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, those ones without proper identification equipment could be pink glass, it could be tourmaline, it could Quartz. There's all sorts of pink minerals that it can be with if it's just a broken thing and you don't have other information. So that's not really terrible, um, especially without other context. And those tourmalines and barrels even form in the same place. Oh. Yeah. So that's the best part of your work. Uh, not everything is sunshine and roses. Tell me about the worst or the most challenging part of your work. Uh, waiting for data to come back is always a nuisance. Um, sometimes getting the proper equipment to do a bit of sample prep has been annoying. But really what I dread is just formatting. I don't mind the writing about the science. I can make a story, I can write what I find, that's good. Um, just all of the nitpicky little bits of, I need this figure to be exactly in a certain way, such that it's easy for everyone to read, um, not just me. <laughs> uh, and just the minutia of all of that, that there's a ton of tedious little details that go into science communication, which it's very important because your science is meaningless if you can't communicate it, but it's not as fun. <laughs> And you're certainly communicating it at a very high level uh, to a very um, select group of people. Yeah, this ends up going into the academic journals where it needs to have every word perfectly in place mm -hmm. to ensure that I actually said what I meant. Because if academics love nothing more, it's to find mistakes in other people's work. And But I'm sure, yeah, that would drive me up the wall as well. Yeah, and uh, I mentioned to you at one point, uh, I have my lab mates take a look at my figures to make sure that they are indeed readable because otherwise I might make the points too small because I think it's tidy, but then others go, it's, it's not very legible. Sounds like you have a nice uh, collegial uh, environment that you work in. Yeah, all of my lab mates are fantastic. So 
It's a good support network here. Do you find that mineralogy as a field is uh, nice and open and welcoming, or is it a little more uh, insular and closed off? Uh, mixed. So it's getting better. And there's lots of good, fun mineralogists around, and I've met them, and they're fantastic. Um, but it is an older geology field with a less than diverse group. And there have definitely been some who I was glad to meet before I decided to apply to grad school, because then I knew to not bother. Um, yeah, but I'm glad I'm here where that's not really a problem. That's always good advice, no matter what kind of life decision you're going to make, especially something as uh, intimidating and um, a big tr chunk of your life is grad school. You want to know who you're going to be working with and essentially living with for the next four years of your life, possibly even longer. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you need to make sure that you're going somewhere where you can work with everyone. <laughs> you mentioned that the field uh, does struggle with some aspects of diversity. I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belong to any underrepresented uh, communities? And if so, has that affected your research in any way? Only a little bit of women in science. Um, not the most underrepresented by any stretch, but yeah, it did. Um, I think more so during undergrad for me, which was like, I didn't really know what I was doing in undergrad, except I really liked science and I wanted to know why things sparkle and where to find them. Physics, geology, why and where. Um, I had really good grades, um, better than most. And the other women I knew who knew they wanted to do research did seek out undergrad research and they were able to find it. And that's good. Um, but it wasn't ever really suggested to me something that I could do, but it was suggested to the guys. As, oh, if you have a good GPA, then maybe you should do some undergrad research. And the opportunities were around, but not knowing that that's something I might have been good at, I was pretty left behind. And by the time I realized that I wanted to do research, it, people told me it was too late because uh, I was a senior and no one takes on a student senior year. Never mind the fact that I had an additional year and a half because I just declared still a major. They're just, wow, said, sorry, nope. I would have had more time than others that they normally take. Um, but I, I missed the chance to do undergrad research. And then that did affect me going into the master's because I was clueless. I just didn't know to set up a project, what the expectations were, um, what my instruments at my disposal were. Because uh, all I'd been presented with were homework problems. And I was good at my homework problems, very good at them. But I, I didn't know anything about preparing a sample or how many I needed or things like that. And I ended up with, a, at least at first, a very hands-off uh, advisor who wasn't giving me much advice. And that made things very difficult for a while. So I think it would have been better if I'd had someone just go, hey, you should do some undergrad research. Because I haven't seen that sort of thing for other people I know who've gone into their master's having done undergrad research. It's a much more fluid transition um, at that point. 
the university system likes to pride itself on being very transparent, but I totally agree. It's very opaque in many ways. Um, there's certainly the coursework that you're expected to do, but then there are all these hidden opportunities and expectations, which unless you know to ask about them, uh, you just don't. And this is something that even people who are just uh, first year or first generation university students, if they didn't have parents who went to university to tell them, uh, this is what you have to be doing outside your class time, uh, that can also be a, a disadvantage. Yeah. Often the amount of emails you get are also overwhelming or you don't know the significance of them because the emails are there, yeah. but there's so many around and- You don't know which ones are important and which ones are spam. It's pretty difficult. Um, but I suspect that things are in the process of changing, at least on pushing other girls to do research, just observing that what Lindsay Underground was 10 years ago. And just in that time, I'm watching things be a little better. So that's good. Um, we still have to fend off harassment sometimes, but that's its own problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And hopefully not too often. Hopefully not too often. Um, I have not encountered that here, but during the masters, that was its own thing. Um, and uh, 10 women and two men, I think that was, uh, could not get a second harassment case to have any consequences against a harasser. Oh, yeah. Um, so not much confidence in that, unfortunately. Uh, one thing that we've all been dealing with uh, the past two years has been COVID. Uh, has it impacted your studies? I was going to be doing a bit of research, more geologic, geologic focused than crystallography focused. I was going to go to Utah to figure out the formation of that red barrel. Because you go, okay, it's in these rhyolites, um, there's some suspicions on how it formed, but I was going to revisit that because the last stuff that had been done was two decades ago. Um, good, but a little incomplete. And I got to do the preliminary field work in 2018, just kind of check out viability of the project. We were planning on going back to Utah in summer 2020, which didn't happen because Utah uh, crossing a border a bunch of Canadians wasn't really gonna happen. And we also just, we didn't have vaccines, we didn't have safety. So that project got shelved and I just kept working on side projects and those side projects turned into what I'm doing a PhD on, uh, which they're good projects. I like them a lot. And fortunately my last, or not quite last, but the samples I needed for my second paper uh, my colleague was able to rush run them the day before the lockdown in Czech Republic. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I actually, he he diligently just slammed those through as things were about to shut. And I got the data I needed to get me through uh, 2020 and largely through 2021. Uh, and then I was able to work in the lab more and we were able to at least proceed with caution. Um, a little sad on one aspect, which is one thing I wanted to avoid was becoming a one-trick pony. Um, I like the crystallography, but I still want to do more on geology and COVID. Definitely made it so that it was easier to be a lab geologist than a field geologist. Um, 
So that's it's it is what it is. Um, for anyone listening, you know, when something as huge and disastrous as a global pandemic comes along, just keep plugging away as best you can, and yeah. hopefully you'll be able to do some version of what you want to do. Yeah. And this is all stuff that I've enjoyed and I like, and I do want to continue this type of work in the future. Uh, was just hoping to get a little more balance. Um, so we got a little opportunity uh, in September 2021 to go up to Rufflestoke uh, to look at a pegmatite. Uh, highly fractionated rocks, often gems are in there. There was a bunch of tourmaline at the surface, not Jenny, but there could be. Um, so I got a tiny bit of field work and I can be an assistant on that project in the future, maybe, but uh, at least I didn't lose all field work. I got a tiny bit. <laughs> Sounds like you successfully pivoted. And now I'm imagining you in that Friends episode yelling pivot at your PhD. <laughs> now, if anyone's listening right now and wants to follow in your footsteps, uh, what experience or uh, courses uh, would you recommend they they take or pursue? Uh, so generically, go play with rocks and minerals a lot and go to the rock shops, the rock mineral shows, all of those. Talk to people. They have the observations that sometimes academics don't. Uh, talking to jewelers is good. Uh, it was actually a jeweler who told me to stay in academia when I went to get my graduate gemologist certification. Uh, just on the, that certification was good. I did it. Uh, but I did find I wanted more on the research side. Um, so that's on the outside academia part is talk to people, play with rocks, all of that. And then in academia, you need your general chemistry. Uh, do as much physics as you can. Uh, it's not that that's what I use all the time by any stretch, but it is in the background of whatever I do. Since I'm doing X-ray diffraction, it's nice to know how that works. Uh, your mineralogy and your petrology courses are your bread and butter. So know those well, know your geochemistry pretty well. Uh, so that would take you through undergrad and the grad courses that I took, which I really liked would be Let's see, uh, physics and chemistry of solid earth. That was awesome. And I took geochronology, thermochronology. That was fantastic. So figuring out how old rocks are, how old minerals are, and like what temperatures they were at as they were in place. That was pretty neat. Yeah, and isotope geochemistry was a ton of fun. I loved that course. And if I was doing more geology, then this course would help, but it's one that's just, it was so good to take that I can't leave it out. I took the course on tectonic history of Western North America, and it really just helped thought processes of how to read science papers and what can be important. Um, so I'll take you through courses and weird one, get good at arts and crafts. Because <laughs> being good with your hands is how you end up doing sample prep. So make sure that if you're able, then try to be able to make things. 
it helps. I know that um, doing a, a grad a graduate degree, a PhD, can be uh, very challenging, and you often need a community to support you. Um, I'm curious, did you have anyone uh, supporting you as you did your studies? Uh, here, so much more than during my master's. Uh, this has been really good for having a network of people to lean on. Glad to hear that. Uh, my supervisor has been uh, very supportive. Like, when I need help, he's there for me. Um, sometimes I have to figure out things on my own. But if I go, hey, there's a problem, uh, I absolutely have backup. Um, my friends have been there whenever I've needed a pickup, which has been great that I have people to turn to, um, that I can trust that much. Because during the master's, I was a little bit on my own because uh, I was a TA for physics for geology. So I missed out on kind of making all those connections. Um, but yeah, you, you need to like everyone that you're around <laughs> uh, and make sure to take care of yourself because if you're not taken care of, nothing gets done. and Having a little bit get done is better than having nothing get done. So uh, self-care is important and people to help with that is also pretty darn important. Wonderful advice and I'm glad you've got a, a better community here. Yeah. Um, not that I'm glad you had a bad community, or <laughs> not a bad community, but uh, yeah. yeah, I'm glad that you're in a good place. Looking to the long term, uh, I know you're just starting your career, but where do you see mineralogy and gemology going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people to, to anticipate some of these changes uh, that are coming down the pipe? I'm hoping that mineralogy can be incorporated into more of the other geologic branches more instead of, oh, we have a new mineral, let's describe it. Which, you know, that's all still important because new minerals are fun and interesting. But I think that mineralogy is a good bridge between other aspects like you gotta have your geochemists and you have your field geologists and all of these but mineralogists can really look at what the impact of a given mineral is so i think just getting involved more with other subdivisions would be something that i'd hope happens more and advice for young ones going into that, uh, just be ready for a lot of different types of geology and lots of different instruments, lots of different types of minerals. Interdisciplinarianism seems to be the, uh, the leading trend in yeah, science. Mineralogy is just funky because you can take it in a few different ways. Now my final question, um, for you personally, uh, again, looking to the end of your career, what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you retire? Or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone? Uh, she liked sparkly things and got to play with them. <laughs> um, but otherwise, uh, I hope that I can bring more people into geology and just in general, because what I do is playing with pretty things and showing why they're pretty and how they're pretty and where you can find pretty things. And that's all of the stuff that we want to protect in the world. And it's also kind of the clickbait of geology. Uh, so we can bring people in. Uh, but from there, I would hope that my students explore more of geology. Because uh, it's not just the pretty things. 
uh, the pretty things are. Mm. The tip what? of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg and it's why other disciplines are also important. So anyone who's studying the earth and wanting to figure out how to save it, well, they're going to figure out how, but why save it if you can't enjoy the pretty things? <laughs> so we need both. And if this is a gateway into it, then I will be very happy. For Wonderful. I'm sure you'll be very successful. Um, you're certainly engaging. Rihanna, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I left out or anything you want to add before I let you go? Ooh, anything that you left out? Mm. Oh, I think that's a little bit for you to decide if there's more you want to interrogate me on, but otherwise, uh, puns. I have the best puns. Oh, yeah. Best barrel. Right. <laughs> I mean, Spelled my, work is, my, my work is more fun than a barrel of monkeys. Uh, on days when I'm just really tired, you could say I'm barely functioning. Oh, I like that one. Yeah, I really like that one. So there you go. That's off your office, your office door. door. I think I have that as my signature on Discord. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a bunch. All right, thanks for having me. And thanks for letting me use samples. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.